Hi, this is Polly Woods, and I'm excited that you're listening to the Beautiful Words podcast. Today, we're going to study Jesus' first sign in the book of John in chapter 2, turning water to wine in the wedding at Cana. So as we know, this author is very intentional about how he writes, including where he places stories in the text. So this sign that seems so trivial to us actually is something that the author is trying to use to define the ministry of Jesus. Now, um, notice that I'm using the word sign rather than the word miracle. I don't have a problem with the word miracle. The reason I'm using the word sign is because oftentimes in the text, the author will use the word sign to describe the miracles. Um, And I think that that's an important word in this text because... What he's trying to say is that the things that Jesus is doing is a signpost for God and who God is and what he's capable of doing. And so every time that Jesus performs a miracle, um, it's really a sign, something that points us to God the Father. And that's the reason why he uses that word. And that's the reason why I will likely use that word most of the time. So anyway, um, again, that's that just shows how John really cares about the words that he uses and what they mean. Um, so anyway, John's trying to use this, this sign to define the ministry of Jesus. But why would he do that? Why would it matter that Jesus cared about a party being ruined? And even if he did, why would it be so worthy of being placed at the forefront of Jesus's ministry? This man healed the blind, the deaf, the lame. He resurrected the dead. This man did things that no one else could do. And he came to bring the kingdom of God. So why is he so concerned about a wedding feast belonging to a couple whose name we don't even know? Well, let's start by reading the story and see what we can figure out. Starting in John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So first of all, something that's interesting to note in this story is who it comes from. We see that Jesus and his disciples were there, so certainly there was more than one eyewitness. But the person who had the the behind-the-scenes information and likely provided this story to the author is named in verse 3, the mother of Jesus. Although she likely had a relationship with all 12 of the 
disciples, um, and that led to her memories being preserved in other gospels, like the story of young Jesus at the temple or the nativity stories. Those probably all came from her. But this particular story is special because she and the author have a special relationship. You might remember that at the end of this gospel, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, one of his last actions in uh, chapter 19, verses 26 to 27, one of his last actions was one of mercy to his mother. He verbally gave the beloved disciple to Mary as a son and Mary to the beloved disciple as a mother. She went into his home and he cared for her from there. This means that Mary was very close to the author and was very likely an active part of his community for many years. Of course, this gospel was written at the earliest in uh, 90 AD. So Mary had likely passed away decades earlier. But this has the air of a story told to John that he remembered and held on to and then wrote down. So the opening words of the story are on the third day. Now, as a Christian, we immediately are brought to the passion story where Jesus rose on the third day. And John is actually using this phrase to tie the story with the next story, which we'll be talking about, which is also in chapter two, um, which is that of Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple. So you'll see in verse 19, if you look at verse 19, you'll see that Jesus makes another reference to three days. All of this is foreshadowing. The third day is the day that Jesus will rise from the grave. It's a day of partying, dancing, eating, laughing. It is ultimately a wedding day. The language of the church being the bride and Christ the bridegroom is such an early metaphor. And so it makes sense here that the wedding feast is happening on the third day. Also, we see that this wedding is happening in Cana in Galilee. If you already looked on your map, you might have found it. It's a reasonable walk away from Nazareth. So these could have been family friends since Jesus grew up in Nazareth, but it could also have been um, Nathaniel's friends. We learn in 21.2 that Nathaniel is from Cana. Well, Jesus and his disciples and Mary are all there. And Mary comes to Jesus and says that they're out of wine. Jesus tries to stay out of it. We can only guess why Mary came to Jesus in the first place. Of course, Mary knows that Jesus is the Son of God, so he's able to do anything. But this is kind of a strange moment to call on his divine powers. Did she feel that he and maybe the buddies he brought to the party were the cause of the wine being gone so quickly? Or had she seen him perform small miracles before, private miracles, private signs? Um, not signs <laughs> because they were private. Um, or could she be suggesting that he should just go out and buy some more wine for the party? Um, but I don't, I don't think that really makes sense because she then told the servants to do whatever Jesus asked. But regardless, we're not sure why she said it or why she thought of asking him. But one thing that is really enjoyable here is the humanness of the moment. Um, so just a little tangent for me. I fell in love with Jesus when I started reading, when I was a teenager and I started reading the book, The Jesus I Never Knew from, by Philip Yancey. Um, in that book, he really focused in on the humanness of Jesus. Um, our Christian belief about the incarnation is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But 
being humans, that's like a really familiar area for us. And so it becomes, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. So we don't really love the idea of Jesus being human. So it's really easy for us to avoid that side and think of Jesus only as God or like this man who's above everyone else, who's perfect. Um, actually, tangent within a tangent, um, <laughs> when, uh, when my son was um, small, I joked with my husband. I said, he is just the perfect child. He never cries. I'll, I'll bet you he was even a better baby than Jesus was. And my husband was like, um, how can you say that? <laughs> Jesus probably never cried either. But then we started t- talking about it. And honestly, of course, Jesus cried. Jesus could have been a fussy baby. He could have been colicky. We don't really know. And, um, and that's the thing. We, we tend to hold on to that. Um, God-like side of Jesus because it's different from us and it's interesting, but we forget how beautiful it is that Jesus actually had a very real human side. So in Yancey's book, as well as some others that I've read from Max Lucado, um, they really can open your eyes to Jesus as someone with dirt under his fingernails, pimples on his face, a real human who had his diaper changed as a baby and scraped his knees as a child. To me, a God who is humble enough to come down and experience what we do, that's what really made me thirsty to get to know Jesus. And it's the reason that the Gospels are such an exciting part of the Bible for me. So here we are in the midst of trying to grasp his humanness. And John gives us a human story that we can relate to. Jesus's mom is getting on his case and Jesus is whining because he doesn't want to get involved. Jesus's mom knows him well enough to know that he's going to do the right thing. And after the argument, he feels bad and he does the right thing, even though it's against his own self-interest. It's so real, it's so relatable, and it's so human. And for me, this is a really beautiful place to stop and dwell and see the beauty of the incarnation. You know, we spent a lot of time in chapter one talking about the Trinity, um, which is a major Christian belief. And here we can stop and think about the incarnation and how amazing it is that Jesus, even though he was fully God, and we've already seen that, He also was fully man. So speaking of his own judgment, let's look at the reason Jesus gave for not wanting to perform a public sign here. He said, my hour has not yet come. Could it be that Jesus was, had known all along that as soon as he performed his first public sign, his clock would start ticking? One sign would be enough to lead to another, to lead to another, and soon would catch the attention of the Jewish elite, starting his painful walk to Calvary. On the eve of his death, Jesus asked God to find another way to pass this cup away from me. So we know that although he knew his mission, he believed in his mission, he wanted to complete his mission, he would give himself up willingly, yet... He was like us. He was being pulled in two different directions, knowing what he must do, wanting to do it, but also wanting to delay and avoid it as well. Well, Jesus's mother knows what he'll do, so she confidently tells the servants to listen to him. Jesus finds six stone water jars. 
These were there for Jewish rites of purification. That's what the Bible tells us. But as you look into the history, we can learn um, that these water rituals were very important for the Jews. In chapter 1, when we were talking about John the Baptizer, we talked a little bit about these water rituals as well. In the first century, it was believed that you had to clean yourself, cleanse yourself, um, in order for you to be spiritually clean as well. And in order to be spiritually pure, you had to clean yourself in what was called living water. Um, We would just call it running water today. And according to their belief, um, clay could get dirty, but stone would remain clean. And so stone jars could be used to store living water for spiritual cleaning. And if you look at the architecture of that time period and the artifacts that are found in that time period, um, in that part of the world, you can find many of these stone jars in ancient homes. Um, So Jesus is faced now with these vessels and in a choice between ritual cleansing and human need, Jesus here shows us that he firmly values the human need. But again, we're coming against that question of what is human need? No one is sick here, injured, dying. Why is it so important that this party would go on? Well, Jesus knew that this feast was customary in the time period. You, this was a, a regular part of life to have a wedding feast. And he knew that if the wine ran out early at this party, the groom would suffer years of social stigma. It could affect the couple's outlook as a family and their future. So this points to what we mentioned before. Jesus is fully human. He understands that social structure isn't just trivial. It's essential to our lives. He cares about this family, their future, their standing in the community. And he sees that aspect, that very human aspect, as much more important than ritual purity. So he tells the servants to fill the jars with water and they fill them to the brim. Now that that phrase, fill them to the brim, it indicates abundance. Jesus isn't being stingy. So then the servants are instructed to take it to the master of the feast. There's a note that the master of the feast doesn't actually know where the wine came from, but the servants do. This fits in with the author's theme that Jesus gives signs to the powerless and not the powerful. We'll see that again in the next story. And of course, the wine that Jesus creates, besides being abundant, is also the best quality. At the end of the story, we see a note that this sign manifested Jesus' glory. So this ties into the first chapter when we're told that Jesus will reveal God. We're learning here that God's heart is with his people. Whether they're suffering, big or small, God is involved and he does care. Something that's interesting to note as well is the the inherent comparison here with Moses. In Exodus, we see Moses turning water to blood. That's the first sign to Pharaoh of God's sovereignty. Do you remember this story? In Exodus, when God wanted to free his people, he used signs, or in that case, plagues, that would convey a message. Of course, when we read them, they just feel like random, terrible things. But when you look into the culture of ancient Egypt, you start to realize that those plagues were a battle of the gods. The Egyptians worshiped the Nile, and Moses turned the Nile to blood with God's power. The Egyptians worshiped frogs, 
God brought a plague of frogs. The Egyptians worshiped the sun and God just blotted it out. God showed over and over again that he was stronger than any so-called God. And here we are with Jesus showing that God's love for his people is greater than his love of the religion that the elite Jews had. He's turning ritual water for washing into wine for feasting. He's showing his glory, and I think we can all join in in saying that his glory is very good. Finally, because the disciples saw this sign, they believed in him. You'll hear me use the word signs instead of miracles. We talked about that already. Um, But the other theme that John is working through in in his gospel is that signs are a starting point for faith although they aren't the end point. In other words, you're better off if you believe without a sign, but a sign can cause you to start to believe. So in verse 12, we have a transitional verse that says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. So one fun fact is to note that oftentimes in all the gospels, it says that Jesus stays in Capernaum. Um, That's a little ways north of Nazareth. So it's really interesting because you can start to speculate. It could be that he has family there, or it could be that he himself owned a house there. And we have no way of knowing, but it is an interesting note. Okay, so now we're going to see a huge change in the tone of the chapter. Jesus is in Galilee at a wedding feast, having a ball, turning water to wine, impressing the master of the feast with the quality of the wine. But now we're going to go back to Judea. And the contrast in his reception as he nears Jerusalem, as well as his demeanor, it's just going to be a huge change. So our next story is Jesus in the temple, turning over the tables of the money changers. As we mentioned before, being an ancient historian doesn't require an intense focus on chronology. Although this story occurs close to the end of the other three Gospels, the author of John places it front and center. This is essential because John is creating a mood of disapproval. John wants it to be clear that Jesus doesn't have an easy relationship with the Jews. So he places their most contentious conflict right up front so that the rest of the book can build the appropriate amount of tension to help his audience understand why it is that the Jews would be eager to kill Jesus. When Jesus anticipates that his intervention at the wedding in the first story will lead to his hour coming, we can see that in the second story it directly does. Jesus' ministry is now up and running, and we need to understand exactly what he's up against. So let's read, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, 
It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So notice right from the first line, the Passover of the Jews. The Johannine community was not so removed from Jewish culture that they weren't familiar with or probably had been participants in Passover. So why is the author trying to create this discomfort and this distance from Jewish culture by calling it the Passover of the Jews? As we know, the Johannine community was thrown out of the temple, so they don't feel like they are a part of that elite Jewish group. So here we are, and he's really creating some space by saying the Passover of the Jews. And um, and then, but right next to it, it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you're looking at your map, you might be thinking, does, does the author have any idea what he's talking about? Because Jerusalem, as you know, is south from Cana. So he had traveled to Cana and then up a little bit further north, north to Capernaum, and now he's going south to Jerusalem. But in the Jewish way of speaking, because Jerusalem was the center of worship and the center of what God was doing, you always go up to Jerusalem. So we see the author use a phrase that is uniquely Jewish right next to the phrase, the Passover of the Jews. Um, So that's interesting. Jesus, now Jesus is coming in. He sees animals being sold, including sheep. Now remember, John the baptizer has already said that Jesus is the Lamb of God. So here we have another echo of the passion. A lot of these animals who are being sold are being sold for the Passover feast. So it'll be lambs. Um, Jesus scatters this market that's grown up inside the temple. Now, there's a lot of significance in this moment and don't miss it. Jesus, who's typically very peaceful, is suddenly very angry. And so it's significant in some way, and and there are some ways that we can find pretty easily. So first of all, um, this marketplace would have existed in the outer court of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. So imagine the temple, um, it's, it's rectangular, not circular, but imagine several concentric circles. So the first circle would be the Court of the Gentiles. Um, this place was designated for those who were not Jews to be able to come into the temple. So in other words, the only place where those who are not Jews could come and experience Yahweh was currently nothing but a marketplace where people shouted and bartered and cheated others out of their money. The religious establishment of the time had taken God's choice of Israel as a sign of their superiority. But when we read the promises that were given to Israel, we learn that God chose Israel so that Israel could be a shining beacon, an example of who God is to his people. The idea was that God would be so much among his people that it would draw the whole world to him. If anything, the court of the Gentiles was the most important court in the temple because it was meant to be the place where the world could come and experience God. Much like Jesus, much like the Torah, this was something that was meant to reveal God to the nations. And yet, the people who dared to come into this place were experiencing corruption. 
In verse 17, there's a reference to Psalm 69.9. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. You can read that chapter on your own and enjoy studying it, but just for a a small summary, um, it's a passionate, emotional psalm asking God for help from his enemies who judge the writer unfairly. So that's pretty, um, that's a, a good parallel to Jesus who is asking God for help from these enemies who will be judging him unfairly, which is about to happen or is about to start anyway. So when Jesus is done, the elite Jews ask for a sign to validate the action he just took. There's that word, sign. Um, So they're looking for something that he can show to prove to them that he's coming from God. But we've learned that Jesus gives signs to the powerless and not to the powerful. We also see Jesus speaking to Jews in a way that they're not capable of understanding. He says he can raise up the temple in three days. Of course, that's ridiculous to the Jews. That would be ridiculous to anyone, but especially to them because the temple had had long been destroyed when King Herod um, decided to take up the, the work and rebuild the temple. And it was only completed in 20 BC. And right in the text, we see that, um, they have a distinct memory of it being completed. Um, it took 46 years to be completed and it only was, was done in 20 BC. So in other words, if it was done in 20 BC and Jesus is doing what he's doing in about, um, just about 30 AD, It was only done 50 years ago. This is a pretty new temple that they're walking through. And so they remember acutely how long it took to build this. And that's what's in their brain. They're picturing him literally knocking it down and literally building it again, um, which is something that happened in many of their lifetimes. Um, And so for them, Jesus is claiming something preposterous that he has no intention of proving. And yet Jesus himself is referring to his death and resurrection. There we are pointing again to the passion narrative. And that's a constant. Um, And of course he's doing that because here he is and it's Passover. And Passover is exactly the time that he, that God will be orchestrating the actual passion happening. And so um, we already have that foreshadowing. And um, as far as timeline goes, timeline's very touchy in the <clears throat> Gospels. As we talked about, chronologies are not something that is as important to ancient authors as it is to us. Um, if one of us wrote the Gospels, <laughs> it would probably have dates and even times, you know, down to the second of when God said, when Jesus said this and this happened and whatever. Um, but that's not what we have here. Um, our scholars in reading the three, the four gospels and, um, harmonizing and trying to figure things out, um, do believe pretty, um, pretty much agree on Jesus' ministry having been three years. Um, so if you think about it that way and Jesus's ministry just started, um, essentially this would be the first Passover of his ministry, and there would be another one, and then there would be the one where his passion occurred. Um, Of course, again, chronology is not a thing that matters that much in the Gospels, and so um, this occurs much closer to the actual passion 
um, in the other gospel. So we don't really know, but um, just as far as keeping some sort of a timeline, at least of this gospel, you can think of it as a Passover that happened a few years before the Passover that would bring Jesus's passion. So just to have that in our minds. Um, So after this incident, we have the author kind of pan out and give us an overview of what happened in the Passover in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. So this is interesting. First, because we're not told what signs he's been doing here. It says um, that they saw the signs that he was doing. And it doesn't say to us which signs these were um, that he did in Judea. Um, But the Jewish elite certainly hadn't seen any of them because they asked him for a sign and he didn't give one. Um, But something is happening already among the common people in here in Jerusalem. That's especially interesting because as you might know, Passover is a feast where many people pilgrimaged to Jerusalem. As we said, they go up to Jerusalem. And so there will be people from all over the Jewish um, nation at this feast. And so if he's doing signs among the common people in Jerusalem during Passover, in a way, he's really spreading his message wide because these people are going to see him there and they're going to go to their home communities and they're going to be talking about this Jesus. So this is a this is really a, a good start to a ministry. If you ever wanted to start a ministry, this is the way to do it. Um, but anyway, so the author also makes it clear, though, that faith in these signs wasn't enough. Jesus couldn't entrust himself to these crowds. Um, And it's interesting to think about what that could mean. I'm not sure what that means fully, but, um, but it does say that he couldn't entrust himself. So anyway, that's what we have for chapter two. Um, I look forward to spending some time in chapter three next. Um, And that's all for now. This is Polly Woods, and remember these wonderful words from Elizabeth Elliot. The word of God, I think of as a straight edge, which shows up our own crookedness. We can't really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with the straight edge of the scripture. <laughs>